the From the Father's Heart series for the last five weeks. Problem is, I'm not a father. Uh, so AJ coined this commercial break, wherever he's at, um, From a Child's Heart, a one-part series. <laughs> so welcome to From a Child's Heart. We're going to begin and end this series in Genesis 22, all right? So go ahead, open your Bibles, Genesis 22. Uh, we'll just read the first 14 verses of that, and I'll give you a second. We'll also have it on the screen in the NIV, um, if, if you wish. All right, Lord, just lead us tonight. Let me just shepherd our community to the great shepherd. We love you so much. All right, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while you, uh, sorry, sorry, while the boy and I go over there and worship. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham, and then Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Uh, when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out to his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Whoa. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your only son. So Abraham uh, looked up and in the thicket saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And today, to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is such an easy one to preach on, huh? <laughs> it's a really odd one to us modern readers. Child sacrifice, testing. There's a lot on the surface here that it's just hard to understand. And in fact, a couple years ago, I went through a super tough season that I would just call what I thought was the end of my faith, where I thought there is no way I could believe in a good God anymore because of stories like this. Because of moments where I had known a good God in my life, but it was very hard to reconcile often what I saw in the Bible to a good God. And I remember saying to Haley, who's with the kids now, I don't even know if in five years I can still be a Christian. And the Lord has led me on a really, really beautiful journey of just reestablishing roots and faith in my heart. But I got to be honest with you, this is still a really tough passage, right? Right? Like, even if it's a test, God, did Abraham know that? Did Isaac know that? This is still pretty gnarly. 
Uh, one of my favorite teachers, Rabbi David Foreman, uh, he talks about the lullaby effect. He kind of relates this verse too. Now, if you're familiar with the lullaby effect, um, it's like how we don't even realize the super crazy songs we sing to our children to put them to sleep. You know what I'm saying? It's a rock by baby on the treetop. When the wind flows, the cradle will fall and you'll plunge straight to your death. Sweet dreams. <laughs> and this story, it's, it's very similar. Oh, old man Abe, what a man of faith. He had so much faith that he took his son to the top of a mountain without even questioning God or telling his wife, Isaac's mother, the boy's mother, made his son carry the wood that he would burn him on. And then when, right before it was too late, he lifted the dagger to put it right through his son's neck. And we're just like, wow, what deep faith. What a good man. He must love God, love God so much. But we forget about all the trauma therapy Isaac's going to need. We forget about the EMDR he's definitely going to need. Abraham doesn't even seem to flinch when God asks him to kill his own son or bring up the fact that God had promised to continue the blessing to the world through Isaac. No one else. Isaac. But then I found an even greater problem as I continued to read through the Old Testament. And it was this, that God is abundantly and completely abhorred with child sacrifice. He hates it. It is absolutely one of the most evil and wicked things that had ever been done on earth. It was common practice in the ancient Mesopotamian religions, yes, but not with Yahweh. In fact, God even said through the prophet Jeremiah that he never demanded child sacrifice, that it never even crossed his mind. So, growing up, either A, my understanding completely failed me, which I gotta be honest, is very possible. I was not always the most intellectual as a kid. Or I had been taught that the point of God testing Abraham was to see if Abraham loved God so much that he'd be willing to kill his only son to prove his allegiance to God. But that is completely pagan. It's completely pagan. Second Kings, we've seen King Mesha, the pagan Moabite king, sacrifice his first son by nailing him on the wall and burning him to the God of Chemesh. In Kings and in Chronicles, King David's own son, one generation later, sacrifices his boy in fire, and God hates it. Leviticus 18 would be another great example. So my question is, what the heck's going on here? <laughs> because it sounds like God's contradicting himself a little bit, you know what I'm saying? But uh, as, as Rabbi Sachs reminds us, which thank you, Brian Roundson, for the beautiful recommendation, um, that had the point of this test been to prove Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, that in terms of the value of God, of the Old Testament, and of the unified Bible, Abraham would have proved himself no better than a pagan king. And he continues on to say that Abraham literally means, the name Abraham literally means father of many nations. God said that he chose Abraham, that he would instruct his children and his people in the ways of the Lord. In other words, Abraham was chosen to be the model, uh, the, the model of fatherhood to Israel and to the world, not pagan fatherhood of child sacrifice. So you're starting to catch this. Like the way this is written is actually meant to make you feel quite uncomfortable here. But then there's a twist in this whole thing, okay? It's the dang New Testament. 
a whole third of the Bible written in response to Jesus, okay? In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews 11, Paul, uh, he says this moment right here, the binding of Isaac, was accredited to Abraham as faith. Not evil, pagan parenting, but faith. And please catch the nuance of that here. It's very important that faith is all about God's character. It's all about his utter reliability and faithfulness. It is first and foremost, it, first and foremost, it says who God is before it says anything about who you and I are. So friends, this story is first and foremost about God and why Abraham knew he could trust God. How Abraham knew that God is good, that everything he does is good that he's faithful to his character, and that God's character is the defining bar of goodness in this world. That's what this is about. If this test is, is about Abraham proving his allegiance to God, then all he needs is strength and compartmentalization. Just drive the dagger through the neck. He doesn't need faith. But if faith is what Abraham has, then it's all about trusting God and his provision in the moment. Why would he need faith if he was just going to have a dead son by the end of it? All right. I literally wrote breathe in my notes because I'm a passionate one. Okay, you with me? You good? All right. Now, you and I aren't the first ones to ask these probing questions of these stories, these kind of surface-level contradictions. Um, there is a philosopher and theologian by the name of Soren Kierkegaard from the 19th century who wrote a book on this called Fear and Trembling. And this book basically wrestled with the anxiety and, and just a bunch of different views uh, kind of of Abraham during this moment. And uh, I'll kind of paraphrase this myself, but essentially after wrestling with all the uncertainties of this story, he kind of came to one conclusion about it. And that conclusion was this, that the idea of faith is completely dreadful to those who are not fully surrendered to God. That the very idea of faith, trust in God, is absolutely dreadful to anyone who has not first surrendered their lives fully to God. It doesn't even make sense if we're not surrendered to God. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how can I trust somebody if I don't trust them? It's preposterous. How are we supposed to be in control if we aren't actually in control? How do I trust God if I don't want what God wants? Or how do I live a life fully devoted to God if I'm still living a life devoted to man? Because the very essence of surrender to God is it requires to die, us to die to ourselves, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And so surrender to God, as Abraham shows us, looks like putting to death Anything in our lives that threatens to take God's throne on our heart. Surrender to God looks like putting to death anything in our lives that threatens to take God's throne on our heart. Because it's only possible when we have complete trust like Abraham that God is good, that he is, everything he does is good, that he is faithful to his character, and that his character is the bar that defines good. So you can see why Kierkegaard, after wrestling with this story from so many different angles, comes to the conclusion that the idea of faith is simply dreadful. It sucks. It's the worst if we're not fully surrendered to God. 
Because how could Abraham have possibly taken Isaac up the mountain if he didn't have complete trust that God would provide? And so my hope is that this journey of Abraham kind of illuminates the journey of surrender for all of us tonight. I hope that God just paints his beauty all over this. It's not, an, it's not about an evil God. It's about a good God. Because at the end of the day, this wasn't just a blind trust that Abraham had in God. He had story after story and, and promise after promise of God's provision in his life. And it was still faith. Like, he hadn't seen everything come to pass, right? But he had story after story. And so we can't read Genesis 22, this whole moment we just read of the binding of Isaac, as kind of a, a story in and of itself with an open and a close, I think probably the best way to look at this story is more like a movie scene where you don't really understand what happened in this scene without, you know, the prior scenes to explain before it and even the things that come after in response to it. And so this is kind of like a scene and a very important scene in the greater story of Abraham and all of the people of God to this day. And so, uh, Abraham, so basically, the, the whole story of Abraham starts in Genesis 12. I would have loved to read more of it, but we don't have the time necessarily. So I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a little bit of it for you guys, all right? So join, in Genesis 12, the Lord calls Abraham away from his family. And then first, he promises land. Now, for Abraham to leave his family is actually wild. It's not like you and I, like, I'm going to go get some sick waves in Bali for a year. Like, you didn't do this in the ancient culture. You stayed there with your family. And then God promises to make him into a great nation, but he doesn't even have kids. And he says, I'll bless you. I will make your name great, and I will restore my blessing to all of the earth through your family. Those are some beautiful promises in there. And Abraham hadn't seen them all come to pass yet, but there was one other that was maybe most dear to Abraham's heart. And it was his son Isaac whose life God created in the dead womb of Sarah. She was completely barren at 90 years of age, well beyond the age of menopause. She gave birth to Isaac. Now we have to remember that in an ancient culture, family was absolutely everything. It was everything. It actually, it's what people's worth, people's worth was built on their ability to produce children, and they hadn't been able to do that. And so I was kind of laughing this week because I was listening to a Bible Project podcast, and I think it was John, was basically saying, like, in the ancient world, you didn't have a savings account, you had kids. And in the ancient world, you didn't have a retirement plan, you had kids who were going to care for you, okay? <laughs> so for Abraham and Sarah, when they had Isaac, they had been given worth. They had been given value. They had been given the greatest blessing they had ever received, and Abraham had a living testimony in his son Isaac that God could provide life from death. So he had every reason to trust every other promise of God. And it's in that moment, it's in that moment that God tests Abraham. Now for us modern readers, that, that kind of feels a bit of friction, you know what I'm saying? That's hard to understand, but it's very common throughout the biblical narrative that God tests the people he's going to give high responsibility to. So if God were a 21st century Westerner like you and I, he'd probably ask us on a coffee date. I'd prefer daydream maybe. And he'd pour me a little single origin uh, Ethiopian pour over. And he'd sit down and he'd say, Tyler, 
I got two things I want to share with you. The first is, I don't like child sacrifice. It's the worst. And second, if I ever ask you to sacrifice your child, don't, I, don't, I don't actually want you to do it. But, but just try, I just want you to know you can trust me, okay? But in an ancient Eastern culture, that's not at all how truth was communicated. The, the lived story that would be passed on throughout the, the millennia was, was where truth found its home. And so this was completely regular, completely normal, and it's right here in this test that Abraham had to stand in the tension of the promise and the command of God. The promise was that he'd be given land. He'd be given a family, many descendants. He would have blessing and fame in his life and that the whole world would be blessed through his family. That was the promise. But the, and all that was going to come through Isaac. We've got to remember that. But then the command was to kill Isaac. Hey, God, the promise can't be fulfilled through Isaac if Isaac's dead. You know what I'm saying? The, the, fam, the world cannot be blessed through my family if I don't have a family. But Abraham had resolved in his heart that though the promise and the command were contradictions to one another, the outcomes would not be contradictions. He had resolved deep in his heart because he knew the Lord's provision that though the command and the promise were contradictions to one another, their outcomes would not be contradictions to one another. And that is the radical faith that Abraham had in the character of God. It's absolutely beautiful. Okay, you guys with me? You're a little quiet tonight. I don't know why. I think maybe AJ should have come up and done his metal core drum solo again or something. Get everyone stoked. <laughs> now, I got a little chuckle last week when Chris was preaching, uh, which I thought was a brilliant uh, message on generosity. Um, but he, he said uh, that faith isn't necessarily one plus one equals two. Sometimes faith looks more like one plus one equals seven. Now, it's funny, but it's good. It, it really is good. Because I left last week wondering... How are you and I leaving room for that kind of faith in our lives? What's God calling you and I to to bless the world, but we actually have no chance of doing it? At least by the numbers, at least by the facts, most definitely our insecurities. Other than a complete trust that the one who called us will be faithful to his promises. How are you and I leaving room for that kind of faith in our lives right now? Just a little story. Uh, Haley and I both feel like God has called us to go back to school. And so she wants to go get her teaching credential, maybe at Biola. And I am switching seminaries, but I'm, I'm, I'm back in seminary for theology. Now, here's the problem. We definitely don't have the money for that. 100% we don't have the money for that. But we feel like God's asked this of us. The second is, we really want to have kids. We see God's blessing on that on the, in the scriptures. We definitely don't have money for that, and I put three exclamation points next to that one, okay? <laughs> and we want those kids to know their grandparents and cousins because family is important to God, but our families live on opposite sides of the country from one another. And Haley and I feel like that maybe in the next couple of years, God is calling us to plant a church somewhere, but we don't have a clue when, how, with who, where, other than just a confidence in his faithfulness to his promises. If he's called us, he will be the one who provides. 
But at the same time, we have idols on our hearts, just like we all do. We have idols on our hearts that are preventing us from having complete faith that the God who called us will bring it all to pass. And even really good God dreams can be tainted by our possession, by our need to be in control, to make sure it goes our way. In fact, sometimes we actually need to lay really good things down, things we really love, in order to heed the voice of God, in order to be obedient to his narrative for our life. Because after all, and I know I probably say this almost every time I preach, that God's greatest desire for us isn't to have a beautiful home over here in Eastside Costa Mesa, overlooking Back Bay, maybe some mid-century modern furniture, if that's your aesthetic. I know it's kind of Austin's. I've been in his room. Uh, maybe you got the more countryside folky thing, whatever floats your boat. But that's not God's greatest desire for you. God's greatest desire for you isn't even to live a life free of trials and tragedy. And his greatest desires for you aren't even for you to be happy all the time. That is called moral therapeutic deism. And it's the idol of our culture. That if I'm just good enough, God will bless me. If I'm kind to others, he won't let me get sick and die. That the central goal of my life is to be happy and feel good about myself. And that God doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life, except when God's needed to resolve an issue. That's moral therapeutic deism, but that is not Abraham's God. Abraham's God is the God of testing and the God of provision. He's the God who gives and takes away. The one who leads us through valleys and up mountaintops. Abraham's God is the one who heals us and wounds us. And yet it's all good. It's all good, not by blind optimism, but in deep and loving fatherhood. So he asks Abraham, do you trust me? Let me see that you trust me. Are you just in this for the blessings you get through me, or do you actually trust me? But what about when there isn't anything in it for you, Abraham? What about when, when you don't necessarily get something out of it, like great nations, like fame, like kids, like wealth. And what about us, Genesis? What about you? Do you trust him when there's no guarantee of anything in it for you? In joy and in suffering. When you have much, when you have little. When the promises of your life that God has spoken over you in the current reality of your life look like complete contradictions to one another, do you continue to put one step of faith in front of the other because ultimately you get him? It's, it's moments like this where I want to pray the Psalms. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know every anxious thought in me. See if there is anything offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. Test me. Test me, God. Expose the areas of my life where I'm just plain selfish, where I just want you to fit in my box, to accomplish my dreams, to make me happy, to benefit me. And yet Abraham shows us the alternative. He shows us the alternative when he walks up that mountain, that he's confident that one of two things will happen. At best, 
God stops him from killing his son. But at worst, he drives the dagger through his neck. But Abraham knows that God can bring him back to life. He's seen God give Isaac life in death and a dead womb. And I know he can do it again. And, and Abraham is confident that he will see the faithfulness of the Lord in the promises that he's spoken. That's Hebrews 11 right there. Verse 9, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham didn't know how God would be faithful to his promises, but that he would be faithful to his promises. And that is his confidence. And so it's at that moment when Isaac is as good as dead on that wooden altar, and, and Abraham grabs the dagger to kill him, that the angel of the Lord stops him. Stop, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replies. God is confident that now he has Abraham's full trust. And then God provides a ram caught up in the thicket, a, a, a grown-up male lamb to sacrifice on the wood altar. And I hope you are just catching the clear allusion to Jesus right here, that he's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Isaac was the one that God had established his covenant through for generations and generations. The world would know their God through the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. But Isaac was as good as dead. But resurrection was the means of God's promise. And so it's at this point that you and I can rightfully look straight to the cross of Jesus how could Jesus become the atonement, the forgiveness of sins on the cross? How could the kingdom of God come through him if he was dead? Other than knowing that God provides life where only death is anticipated. That's the faithfulness of God. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament theologian, uh, I'll just read the direct quote for you. He says that it's this word of resurrection that leads us through this text to the God who surprises us with life. Resurrection concerns the keeping of a promise where there's no ground for it. We see it in Isaac and we see it in Jesus. Faith is nothing other than trust in the power of resurrection against every deathly circumstance. So Genesis, that's the faith of Abraham that you've been invited to today. That God will find a way to bring life even in a scenario of death. Because God is so utterly faithful and dependable. And I will say it again and again and I will say it again and again that God is good. That everything he does is good. That he's faithful to his character and his character is the bar that defines good. And he knows we'll screw up. He knows our addictions to sin and idolatry, but he also knows that without his goodness, without his faithfulness, we have no chance, no hope of faithfulness in return. See, this story from start to finish is not at all a story of an evil God who demands child sacrifice or subverts his own word. This story from start to finish is about the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. So how do we kind of get this all wrapped up into our lives? It's a great idea. God is good and faithful, but how does that become the living reality in our life? Well, 
I hope to just lead us into a couple moments of response. You got two minutes left in you? All right, good. Uh, Kate, and we're going to start worshiping in a second if you want to come up. All right, the number one, it just the way I think we can start to practice this, just integrate this, invite God into our lives through this. I just think back to that Soren Kierkegaard moment, that the idea of faith is completely dreadful unless we've surrendered to God. Just like Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And so tonight I invite you, we're going to spend probably the chunkier time of worship now on the back end. And as we do, I invite you to just spend some time as we respond to God, just surrendering your life back in his hands. Ask him to search your heart, to test you, to point out any offensive way in you. There's an old spiritual hymn that I just love. It says, but even if heaven were never promised to me, neither God's promise to live eternally, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life. Living in a world of darkness, he came and brought the light. Genesis, do you actually want him or do you just want his blessings? But the beauty is, is that in your invitation to surrender, he is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to restore and he's faithful to redeem you. And then the second is this, is to meditate on this question and, and just invite God in in prayer. How do you want to use me for your kingdom to come on this earth that is completely impossible without my complete trust in you? And then what are the idols on my heart that are just keeping me from just completely trusting your provision back to it? So what is it that God is, is inviting you to bless the entire world through, but you can't do it without his complete provision. And what are the idols on your heart? And then the third, and I think I'll actually just invite you guys to stand now uh, as we begin to worship. The third one is communion. And I invite you tonight as we worship to come up for communion and have a moment with the Lord. Communion is where we celebrate God's provision that when we were completely and utterly dead in our sin, he provided life. Long before we were ever faithful to him, he was faithful to us. And so those are just three ways tonight as we worship. I just want to invite you to ask the Lord to come, just, just the opportunity to surrender back to him, all right? So let's just pray together, and we're going to continue worshiping. Did you have anything, Sam? Okay, cool. So this side over here, the left side, is all wine. You're all the right side. Sorry. And this side over here is grape juice. So if you feel comfortable with one or the other, please. But let's just pray and let's just spend time just surrendering. God, we thank you that you are so utterly faithful. You are so committed to your character that is good. Everything you do is good. And so tonight, we don't just live by blind trust. We live in stories of provision. We live in, in moments of just surrendering our lives, kind of taking that leap of faith and trusting that you'll catch us on the other side. And so tonight, I just pray over this community, Lord, that I, I, just, I just want them to be led by you, good shepherd, that there is just a full surrender wherever you're going, whatever you do, we're following you, God. 
And so, Lord, even now in this moment, this is just an act of obedience back to us, be it through communion, be it through prayer and reflection, or be it through just prostrate on the ground, surrendering ourselves back to you, Lord. Come now, Holy Spirit, and have your way and just move in our hearts to lead us there, Lord, to make much of you in this space tonight. We love you so much.